Well, good morning again, everybody. Um, so this Wednesday starts the season of Lent. It's a season focused on discipleship, following Jesus, um, discipline, uh, disciplining yourselves. Um, it, it really focuses on Jesus' trek to the cross. So it's a lot of denying yourself. Um, there can be fasting involved. So that is, that is Lent, a season of discipleship. To go with this season, we're kind of getting a running start this Sunday, starting a series called Roots, where we focus on six of the foundations of growth in Christ. These are the six uh, chief parts of Luther's small catechism. He considered them so core to the Christian uh, faith and belief and so deeply rooted in Scripture. He, he uh, wrote about them extensively in a larger version and he compacted them in a smaller version for children and families and laity. Uh, at that time, largely, um, largely he was unable to read in Germany, so he counted them so core that he, he wanted them to be able to be memorized easily. So we're going to focus on these six fundamentals of belief and practice to help us know who God is, what he's about, how to grow in him. And we're going to start with the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are a way, a, a tool that we use now, not just to know God, uh, but we, we use them to calibrate ourselves repeatedly, uh, consistently, often. We go back to this law again and again and again to, use, to examine our own behavior. Now, the reason that we go back so often is because it is so, so easy and core to our nature to get it wrong. We can't help it. We get it wrong all the time. We turn the Ten Commandments into uh, more like a list of values or proverbs or just a uh, behavioral code. And to, to use an example of how this can happen and, and what the consequences or um, what those consequences might be, uh, Audrey and I lived in a suburb of Washington, D.C., for a year, and we went into Washington, D.C., we went into the Smithsonian, we saw the museums a lot, we saw uh, Thomas Jefferson's Bible, which was a literal cut-and-paste job, he just removed the parts of Jesus' life that he didn't believe in, um, and he kept the, the teachings, um, so we, we got to see that, we um, saw the Supreme Court building, um, this, is a, this is the side of the Supreme Court building. Hey, Carly, can you go one slide, please? This is the side of the, the eastern side of the Supreme Court building. Um, this is Moses in the middle. To his right is Confucius. To his left is Salome. And um, so I, the, the image, as far as I can tell, is supposed to be that our Supreme Court, our way of, of justice, entails wisdom and legalities and um, this is the man who uh, is credited with Athenian democracy okay so these are the influencing factors of our of our justice system what we have is God's law being an inspiration for our laws okay so really we're not a nation under God, we're a nation inspired by God. We see this kind of throughout, interwoven throughout the foundations of, of our society. Uh, 
God's law inspires our own laws. So we have the Ten Commandments decorating courthouse lawns, right? And, and we might get upset when those things get removed and say, well, they're taking, they're taking God out of that. But in reality, when we look at it critically, we use the Ten Commandments in very much the same way in our own lives. They're kind of like decorations. They're decorations for our lives. So, in other words, we use God's law to inspire our own way of life. Right? I, I go where I want. I do what I want. I spend how I want. And as I live my life, I go back and I look, well, have I murdered anybody? No. Okay. Have I, you know, committed adultery? No. Um, am I stealing anything? No. Okay. So, um, I, I'm good. Right? I, I can go about my business. I'm good. Okay. I'm not good, but I'm good enough. Right? I'm more good than bad. I'm basically good. Right? So God's law inspires our own laws. We use the Ten Commandments to springboard our story with His blessing. Much like we see here, we use it as an inspiration to springboard our own national set of laws and values while using the Ten Commandments or God's Word to inform uh, the way we want to do things. So what we end up having are Christians who are largely considered ineffective or out of touch with the world. In fact, Christians who are absolutely maligned. Um, and, and we say, well, that's, that's persecution, it's the values of this age, but not all of it. I mean, to some extent, yes, there, you know, there's an attack on that, but not all of it. A lot of it is just ineffectiveness, being out of touch with people's actual lives will speak a lot to policy and values, but less to personal pains. So when, when Christians are, are seen this way as, as, as ineffective, I think it's because we're trying to tell the wrong story. We have the wrong foundations. We have the wrong tent poles to tell the right story. The Ten Commandments are not meant to tell our story. They're not meant to bolster us up, right? They, they tell God's story. God's law roots us in God's heritage. God's law roots us in God's heritage. So, Moses, as the people are preparing to go into the promised land, we read Deuteronomy 4, Moses is talking to the people. He says, only take care and keep your soul diligently. In other words, none of this going back and say, well, I'm good enough. I got the gist, right? He says, keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. And it goes on and tells the story about how those commandments were delivered. See, he attaches God's law to God's story. He doesn't just hand down an arbitrary set of principles and say, do these things. These are universally things that most, if not all, cultures on the face of the planet carry out. He doesn't say, here's a set of rules. He attaches them to the story of God giving it. 
And then he says, pass it down. Don't just pass down the rules. Don't just pass down the words. Pass down the story. Remember when you were at the base of this mountain, terrified, wetting yourselves because at the top there's fire and thunder and storms and clouds and intentionally a scene to communicate awe and respect and fear even? So, how much of that is involved in our confession? When we, when we consider these laws, when we confess our sins and we say, I have transgressed, I have broken this word of God, I have gone against his will. In fact, I know it and I still went the other way. When we confess these things and think about it, how often in our confession do we think of Sinai and the fire and the fear? and the consequences of what actually comes of breaking God's law. How often do we just kind of quickly fall back and say, well, Jesus has it. I'm good. I, I, don't need, I don't need to feel the weight of obedience. I certainly don't need to feel the weight of disobedience. That's rough. It takes time. It takes self-examination. We don't really attach, usually... We don't attach Sinai in the, in the seriousness of sin to our confession. A lot of times we just kind of blow past it. How often do we think about those false leaders of Israel who used, false leaders of ours, who used God's law or his word as leverage to get what they want, to get um, their own set of honor and riches. I mean, this is what the Pharisees did, right? You live this way. You have to be this holy, just like we are. And because they obeyed God's law so quote-unquote perfectly, they received all kinds of honorable places um, throughout their society. And we can do the same things if we, if we misuse God's law, or if our leaders misuse God's law, but we don't often think about that. We don't often think about how God's law is misused by us to leverage over and against other people? Or how often do we think about the people of God who are led astray by false leaders, false teachings? This was the, this was the bane of the prophet's existence. This is what they kept ranting about for centuries. These leaders of Israel are leading them down a dark path, a path that is so focused on obedience detached from the person of God that they're destroying the people. They're focused so much on doing, 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 sacrificing, getting stuff in return, being blessed, that they completely lose track of the fact that this law is attached to a story, and that story is attached to God himself. We don't think about these leaders. We don't think about the people being led astray by them. How often do we think about Jesus who actually shows the true nature of the law? Paul writes in Romans 13, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. In other words, Christ fulfilled both ends of that legal covenant. See, when Israel went to Sinai, it wasn't just to get a set of behaviors to do. This is how I act as God's people. They were entering a covenant, 
a relationship with God. He, he had brought them out of Egypt. He had wooed them. He had said, this is the kind of God I am, and this is how I will love you. I will protect you from everything. I will save you from everything. Now that you have followed me out, now that you are free, this is what it means to be this nation that I am building. This is how you behave as my people. This is what that means. This is the covenant. If you follow this, I will bless you. I, you will be rooted and undisturbed forever. They didn't. They didn't. The, the law was based on love. Here's how you love each other. Here's how you love the people around you. And they didn't. So what does Jesus do? He shows up and he shows them the true nature of the law, which is not just about obedience. It's about showing them what kind of God he is and what he wants of us as his people. So he fulfills both ends of this covenant and he makes us righteous like him. He makes us look like him in the eyes of God. In the words of Paul, we have been clothed with Christ. So he looks upon us and sees his own righteous, obedient, perfectly just and holy and loving son. So this heritage, this heritage of faith in God, in this, in this law, it's not just about what we do. It's about what he has done. This is the story for us. So first John puts it like this, lest we get confused. First John chapter 4. Starting in verse 10, he says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So, God loves us, therefore we love. God was obedient and fulfilled the law, therefore we follow him in obedience to the law. It's not to earn our place at his table. It's to represent the kind of God he is. So we define discipleship like this. Thing. Discipleship is not just about doing the right things. Discipleship is this. Jesus initiates his love. We imitate his life. Jesus initiates his love. He is the first mover. We respond with imitation. We respond with the righteousness that he himself gives us. So in, in his own words, in Jesus' words, he did not come to erase the law or do away with the law and the prophets or any of the condemnation that he brought on the false teachers or any of the false movements and behaviors and misuses of the law. He doesn't, he wasn't undoing that. He wasn't undoing obedience. He says he fulfilled it. In other words, when we live by these Ten Commandments, this is a mark of the life we have in God. It's not the standard for life in God. It's a mark of what life looks like in Christ. It's not the standard that we have to achieve to earn life in Christ. So what kind of God is it? What kind of God is revealed by these instructions? Where do we see God in these, in these words? Well, we see a God who is spiritually monogamous. You have no other gods before me. He is not saving any other nation. He works through Israel. 
He brings nations into Israel. He, he makes himself accessible to the world. But he's not doing one thing with the Amalekites and one thing with the Canaanites and one thing with the Israelites. He is spiritually monogamous to this people, his bride, to us. He is a just God whose law does not build a culture or power or riches on the backs of the downtrodden. In fact, the commandments that we hear echoed again and again and again in the Old Testament are care for the orphan and the widow and the sojourner. See to their good. He is a just and loving and holy God. So in this scene, you know, it's it's very easy when we confess God to think, okay, we know God is loving. I'm just going to skip quick to the to the forgiveness part. But in the scene that Moses reminded them of, God is unapproachable. He's on top of a mountain. He's shrouded in fire. He can't even be perceived. He says, you you didn't see anything. There was no form. All you could hear was a voice. This, This is a God who we cannot step near to without invitation, without special, uh, without special steps being taken. But in Christ, the unapproachable God became approachable. In fact, not just approachable, assailable. He didn't just give us access to him. He made himself killable. Instead of being wrapped in fire, he wrapped himself in flesh. And instead of commanding love, he himself bore the full weight of love. Love, God's love, is never about getting. It's always about giving. When we love other people, it's not so we get something from them or so we get something from God. It's always sacrificial. It's always self-giving. In the same way with them, the way he has built his culture, his economy, his, his little body and family here, it's that we care for each other. We're not, we're not seeking to get something from each other by following these commandments. When everyone is following these commandments, we care for the needs of each other. So he not only commanded love, but he bore the full weight of that love on the cross. Also that we could actually know him that we're sharing with the world. It's hard to talk to the world about a God we don't know. It's hard to talk to the world about a God we don't understand. So he comes with Christ to make himself relatable and shareable. So our primary heritage, this the, the implications of this are huge because when we think of our heritage, we think of well, our, 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 you know, our European ancestry or our African ancestry or our uh, Latin American ancestry or, you know, or the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the Revolutionary War, the Civil War. We think of these things that shape our heritage, but these are not our heritage in Christ. Sinai is our heritage in Christ. When God said, this is how I make you my family. This is how you act as my family. Sinai is our heritage. Golgotha is our heritage. Where God saved a people from utter destruction, from eternal destruction. Our salvation was not 
our primary salvation, our eternal salvation, is not in national heritage or democracy. It's in a liberation that was bought and won for us on the cross. The new life that was given to us by the empty grave. Our roots are in the God who speaks His will, that we love one another and be loved by Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this morning that we can gather around Your Word and be united by Your Word. It carries so much weight. It doesn't just carry the instruction of how we're to live our life. This Word carries our forgiveness. It carries Your Holy Spirit. It does what it says it will do. God, this is the vessel for Your will. This is how You work in our lives. When we think about these commandments that we have been given, there is so much more than just a set of values to uphold or traditions for our lives. You, you are here. You are in these words. You are the God who wants no other influence in our lives but you. You are the God who would have us protect our rest and our worship of you. You are the God who would have us protect each other and not murder or steal, but preserve and protect and make life flourish. So Lord, let us see beyond this room. Let us see beyond our culture. Let us see beyond our national history and see a salvific history from the creation of the world that you have been building and adding to, that you have been revealing for us. And lastly, Lord, we thank you foremost for Christ. You bore the weight of our disobedience, who expressed love in the most extreme ways, the ultimate self-giving. So Lord, may we take comfort in his life given for us, and may we receive new life in his resurrection. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.